I had a few friends, a few folks who were interviewees, read all their parts of the book and then provide their feedback. And, and really hearing just from their perspective, you know, in the early stages of this book, like, yes, this is, this is the right track. This is exactly how I felt. It was validating and it kept me going. There was definitely times when, you know, juggling a dual degree, finding a job, doing my master's thesis, which was oral exams, and then also working on GBE, when I really just wanted to quit and be like, you know what, I don't want to do this anymore. But I think getting their feedback and really seeing that this book was needed really made me excited and just keep on going forward. Muzna Abbas is a graduate from Georgetown University where she received her dual master's degree in business and foreign service. Currently, she is a strategy and analyst consultant in Deloitte's federal practice, and she's also a published author. As a first-generation Pakistani-American, Muzna wrote Letters to My Brown Mother to start conversations about mental health in the South Asian diaspora. In it, Muzna examines historical events, migration patterns, and cultural communities to understand why South Asian migrants fail to adequately address mental health. Muzna, welcome to the show. Thanks for being here. Glad to have you. Hi, I'm so excited to be here. Thanks for having me. You are our first alumni guest, so you should feel honored, I guess. <laughs> that is awesome. Yeah, I'm really excited to represent Georgetown and talk about my, my time there. It, it seems like it was yesterday, you know, not too long ago. Absolutely. You graduated in the spring. And yeah, I guess we could just start the conversation there with Georgetown. And you were a dual degree master's student. And I just wanted to hear about how you decided to pursue two degrees and what was the uh, driving force behind that? Yeah, that, that's an interesting story because uh, dual degree was never a part of the plan. I started Georgetown in 2018 with the intention of getting my master's in foreign service, which is the program that I was in first. Throughout my first year at MSFS, I learned a lot about impact investing in some of my classes. And I, I knew I wanted to make some sort of a, a difference, a social impact. And when I learned about impact investing, that seemed to me like the best of both worlds, just like magic field where you could have, you know, the, the finances and the money, the knowledge of the private sector, but work with the, with the public sector and do good for people. And so to me, I was like, yep, this is it. This, this is what I want to learn more about. But I realized very quickly that I didn't have any sort of business knowledge or acumen in the sense that my undergrad major was international studies, never taken a business class, never thought I would ever be in business school, but it seemed like the right move. It seemed like that's something that I needed and the knowledge and the skills that you learn at business school was what I would need to, to be successful in impact investing or even try it. So I, I applied to business school on a whim, really, just to see, to see what would happen. And it turned out for the better. I think my first semester at MSB, I learned so much and so many technical skills and, and real things that I could take with me. So I was convinced by, I think, December that I had made the right call in, in doing the dual degree. My student well, loans don't agree with me, but... <laughs> We're all we're all going to feel that pain coming up pretty soon. Oh, um, yeah. <laughs> like if you could pinpoint one or two specific things from MSB that 
really stuck with you the most that you're using in your day-to-day life, you know, in your role as a consultant now? What stands out the most? I mean, there was little things and big things as well. One of the bigger things was the networking aspect. Uh, The job that I currently work at at Deloitte, networking is how you get projects. And right before I started business school, you know, and all of the pre-work, they kept telling us how important networking was. Half of me was brushing them off saying, eh, it's probably not that important. And the other half of me was terrified because nobody really likes to network. But I think that that first semester, that's one of the skills that I worked really hard at talking with classmates. I think I went on 40 or 50 coffee chats. I have notebooks filled with notes from coffee chats. And that really helped me kind of sharpen my networking skills. So when I was recruiting last year in the fall, I had it down to a science. I was, you know, I had my little elevator pitch ready. I knew the questions I wanted to ask. And it went so much more smoothly when I was prepared and felt confident rather than my first few attempts at networking when I felt confused and like not really sure how to ask questions and how to even just have that conversation and make it feel natural and not feel like I'm trying to ask you for a job. In terms of technical skills, you know, we, we all kind of knew Excel would be very important, but I think APS was my favorite class, not only because I learned so much, but it really helped me kind of understand how much you could do with Excel. And throughout my summer internship, I remember using a lot of the skills that I learned in APS. And I continue to use them day to day in my in my job as well. I liked APS too. It was uh, Professor Ulu. She's a she's a good professor. I liked her. She was great. Yeah. Yeah. She was my favorite. Yeah. So I was curious. You must have been really busy when you're pursuing two different degrees. How did you find time to write a book? Oh man. So I remember my first semester of business school. I was like a first semester business school student, just like all my all my friends, but I was also doing MSFS classes as well. So I had six classes when all of my peers were taking four. I was still continuing my internship from the summer, which was an MSFS requirement. So I was working that 20 hour weeks. I was also a TA, which I had been doing since the second semester of my first year at Georgetown. So I was doing that for 10 hours a week. And I was doing like coffee chats, recruiting 10 hours a week. And then I was the chair of the diversity and inclusion club. And then I somehow found time to have a social life. So that (laughs) first, that first. That's the most important part. Honestly, that's where the networking came in from. I mean, there was still often times when I was like, sorry, guys, I can't hang out. I have class to go to, you know, but I found a way somehow to make it work. But I think that really prepared me to be doing multiple things at once. So last year, which was my third and final year at Georgetown, when I started this book creators program, I was much better prepared to be able to multitask and focus on different projects at once. Nice. Yeah. And I just want to back up to something that you mentioned. I know you're passionate about D&I. Can you just dive into that a little bit more and what your involvement in that space looked like while you were at Georgetown? Yeah, I I was always very passionate about diversity and inclusion. That's something I pursued in undergrad. Uh, When I was with Teach for America, I was doing their diversity and inclusion core member advisory board. So I knew that that's something that I really wanted to focus on. Uh, My first semester at Georgetown, there was an MSFS committee. It was a diversity and inclusion committee, just a few students. So I, I joined that. And then in the springtime, 
I was able to become the chair of that organization. So under my leadership, we were able to go from just a small committee holding events for just our small program to a grad gov organization. So we were able to get a charter and then be like a full-fledged club that anybody across Georgetown's grad school could join. So then we had more finances to hold events, more audience, and more folks to to be in the leadership of our club. So uh, we went from the MSFS DNI committee to DIG, Diversity and Inclusion at Georgetown, which I was very proud of the work that we were able to accomplish there. That's amazing. Yeah, being able to, one, leave a legacy, and two, like make a difference and an impact. That's That's very impressive. So hats off to you. Well done. Yeah, thank you. And then, so your day job is a consultant at Deloitte. You interned at a different firm. So walk us through the decision to not remain with that summer firm and wanting to re-recruit the next fall. When I initially started business school, I had no intention of recruiting for consulting. It was not something I was interested in. Like I had mentioned, I wanted to make an impact, and that's why I even decided to start business school, and I didn't see that in consulting. Throughout my course of networking and talking with different folks, I found Alvarez and Marsal, which was the firm that I interned at. They seemed a little bit different because their public sector practice was a little smaller, and to me, if I was going to go into consulting, public sector was the way because at least I was still able to make a positive impact working with the public sector. You know, we were working on state and local projects, um, education projects. And so when I interned there at Alvarez and Marsal, that's when I learned a little bit more that it is possible to make that social impact working in consulting. You just have to find the right place to do that. So at Alvarez and Marsal, I was able to, to learn that. I was able to kind of refine my technical like Excel skills, for example, and just kind of see the consulting world for where I could fit into it. Once I was done with my summer internship, I decided to re-recruit just so that I could see what other firms had to offer in the impact space. And when I was networking for Deloitte and talking to Deloitte practitioners, that's something that every person mentioned, even if I didn't ask the question. So I knew that this was a place where impact was not only given priority, but each individual personally wanted to make that impact as well. And that's not something that I saw at Alvarez and Marcel as much. Yes, the work was was very similar where we, I was in their public sector services practice. So we were doing similar work to what Deloitte GPS does. But seeing that every practitioner personally wanted to make that impact showed me that these were the people that I would want to work with day to day, side by side. Yeah, I mean, making those connections and the people, in my experience, is probably the most important factor in your work. So has has it delivered on kind of what their pitch was and what they were selling you during the recruiting process? I believe so. I mean, I'm only about six to eight weeks in. Okay. And I've already been able to be involved in the diversity inclusion initiative. I've been able to be involved in Georgetown recruiting initiatives. So it's been great to see that from the beginning, I'm able to chart my own path, figure out where I want to make impact, and then just go for that. You get to kind of decide, you know, the type of project you want to work on and network for. You get to decide 
what sorts of other firm and initiatives you want to involve yourself in. So you're really able to kind of make the impact that you want to make in the spaces you want to go into. So I think that's kind of the best of both worlds there. Yeah, for sure. That freedom is crucial. And yeah, I'm in a similar boat at PwC. There seems to be, you know, a lot of room to maneuver and kind of create your own space and what you actually want to do, which that entrepreneurial aspect is part of what appeals to me as well in the consulting space. And then just quickly from a day-to-day standpoint, like is the DNI component of the Deloitte work, is that a separate work stream from your day-to-day project work? Currently, yes, but it doesn't necessarily have to be. You know, when the current project I'm working on has lapsed, um, I'm able to network for other projects. And there there are projects where DNI is the scope of work. And that's something that is interesting to me, and I might look into that in the future. So it's good to know that that opportunity is there for me to, to make DNI a part of my day-to-day job. There are also internal projects instead mm-hmm. of a client-facing one. And I actually was approached for a few that were DNI oriented. So there are definitely opportunities. Uh, that's not the engagement I'm currently on, but in the future, it's possible. Cool. And so far, so good at Deloitte. You've been happy. I know you've only been there for a short few weeks, but so far, so good. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've learned a lot. Uh, the current project I'm on is a little different than any kind of background that I have. So it's been a great learning experience day to day. I will say, though, that remote work is not for me. And I am itching to find a way to go back to the office. And and I live so close by to it. So I'm hoping that I can make my way into the office very, very soon. Yeah. So letters to my brown mother. I want to start diving into just walk us through like how you got started with this book opportunity. Yeah. So it's called the Creators Institute. I was actually reached out to via LinkedIn by Professor Eric Kester. He teaches a few startup courses, a few ILEs, I believe. And he reached out to me, said, you look like a good candidate who'd be interested in writing a book. And I had recently just been telling somebody that in high school and in college, I always wanted to write a book. It was just something I wanted to do. And so he reached out to me, said, you'd be a good candidate for this program. Uh, The Creators Institute was about a two and a half to three month program. And then they kind of walk you through the basics of book writing and the importance of how to do it more efficiently than I'm going to write a book and just start writing. So there was a lot more prep work involved. And Professor Kester kind of goes through how to write your first book like you would write your second book. So, you know, having kind of that knowledge and understanding of not only the book writing process, but how to work with an audience, how to interview folks, things like that. So if you're able to pass through that program successfully, uh, they partner with this publisher, New Degree Press, which is a hybrid publisher. So they're not a traditional publishing house. So we own our content. We don't like sell it to them and get royalties. And then they help us publish the book. They work with us on the cover, on the editing, typesetting, all of that. Awesome. So it sounds like an incubation program for authors and book yes. writing. Is that yes. a good comp? Yeah, exactly. That that's a good way to good way to summarize that. Yeah. What from that program was most helpful for you in your book writing journey? Honestly, I would say it was the accountability. 
like I had mentioned, I had always wanted to write a book, but nobody just decides I'm going to do this and then does it. At least not me. I'm very much of a procrastinator. So having those weekly sessions and having deadlines on and having an editor that you have to chat with weekly and check in with, you know, they're telling you, you can improve this way. You should focus on these folks or interviewing, et cetera, et cetera. But just having that accountability and that constant checking in was very helpful. Even though I still basically wrote this book in like three, two week, like binges of writing where I would just stay up all night and write, but I got them in before the deadline. So nice. There's something about that, about having a deadline that uh, puts your feet to the fire. Oh yeah. <laughs> How many other folks were in this program? There were, there were a lot. There were several sessions. I'm not sure that everybody ends up publishing, but there was definitely about 50 in the session that I was in. And I 50? knew that he was 50. Yeah. Damn. And they were not all Georgetown students. I think this during the pandemic was the first time when he opened it up to sort of every, anybody. So there was people from different walks of life, people in undergrad, people in grad school, people that were, you know, much older, people that had retired. So there was a larger range of, of folks in, in the sessions that I was in. And now I just want to walk and talk through your process a little bit. So I know you're super busy, you got all the stuff going on, you're in this book writing creative program and you're on deadlines and you're staying up all night for weeks at a time to meet these deadlines but like beyond that what was the process like for you in generating the content yeah so the creators institute was throughout the summer so i was interning and then doing that creators institute that was less writing and more ideating figuring out what you wanted to write how the the structure of the book was going to look like. So my process involved me interviewing about 50 to 60 South Asians from different walks of life. So I would reach out to them via LinkedIn, uh, via just like friends that I knew who might be interested in this topic, and then figure out people who would be interested in talking to me about their mental health experience and kind of what it was like for them growing up with regards to mental health and how it was addressed at home. And this was right around the time Netflix's show Indian Matchmaking was very popular. So I had actually reached out to some of the folks from that show who were like contestants and was able to interview them, which was really awesome. So that was kind of my first step was the interviewing. What interviewer story stood out to you the most that made it to the book? So the way I was able to entice folks to tell my story was that I would keep their stories completely anonymous. I learned a lot about their experience. People told me like very, you know, difficult, dark things. Uh, there was a point where I was interviewing like eight or nine people in one week and just hearing all of those stories was actually uh, very taxing on, on me personally. But what I was able to do was take their stories and fictionalize them, kind of combine them all, fictionalize them and turn them into letters, hence the title. So. Anybody that I interviewed, their story is, is in my book and also not in my book. You know, they're never named, but they're their stories and the lessons that they told me that they learned are, are in the letters. Was there one that like stuck with you the most in terms of like hitting home or was there one in particular that like was triumphant or inspiring? I, I was inspired by so many of the folks' resilience. 
Now they told me that they went through so many different things and such like when they were younger and the fact that they're still there talking about their experience, having moved past it and, and being able to describe it and say, yeah, this, this made me who I am, but also it's not going to break me and I'm going to be able to move past this. You know, there, there were folks that told me, I know that mental health is important and therapy is important, but I just can't do that. I'm just never going to go to therapy, even though I know it's something I need. So even just the honesty that they were able to bring to those conversations was so awe-inspiring because it's exactly what I came looking for. And I was, I was really able to find that. That's a good segue for my next question from a psychological standpoint, letters to my brown mother. Like, were you trying to say something to your mother in particular, or is that not the right interpretation for the title of the book? Yes and no. I feel like this is a letter to, to all brown mothers and just brown parents. The, the audience of my book is sort of twofold. It's letters to our parents, our immigrant parents who came to this country, you know, having already dealt with their own trauma from the partition of like India and Pakistan, and then moving to a totally new country, not knowing anybody, you know, they, they did the best they could to raise us. But we still have to acknowledge that our mental health still suffered, maybe not intentionally because of them, but but it did. And so it's a letter to them kind of explaining to them, this is what we went through, whether you realize it or not, whether you noticed it or not, this is what it was like growing up, you know, as children of immigrants. But then this book is also letters to people that are in my generation, those who were brought up here, but their parents are immigrants, kind of like we've addressed that, you know, we had, there's these issues, there are these kind of skeletons in our closet. And in order to, to move forward and, and be healthy and whole for our children and for the next generation, we have to do something about this. So those are both of uh, the audience is not only our parents, but ourselves as well. Yeah, I like that. Why do you think mental health has been such a taboo topic in the South Asian diaspora? And how has this shaped your own experiences? That's the question I hope to answer with this book. But I think it comes down to a lack of understanding and awareness. People are getting to understand it better. But back when our parents were being raised, that was not a thing. You know, there was always another reason why somebody was sick. And it wasn't, depression wasn't real. Anxiety wasn't real. You just weren't praying enough. Or you just, you know, needed to work harder. You were lazy or you were making excuses. So it just really comes down to shifting the mindset to really understanding what mental health really is and the different components that go into it. It's not just a chemical brain problem. It's not just an environmental problem. There are so many different aspects that affect your mental health that it's hard to pinpoint like this. This is the cause of what's happening to you. And whether you find the cause or not, you have to understand that this is still happening. Folks are still going through this. And so whether we know how it happened or where it came from, you still have to address it and you have to take care of yourself. I'm, I'm curious, like the folks that you talked with that knew they would benefit from, you know, seeing a mental health expert, but chose not to, what was their reasoning for not taking that step? The taboo and the stigma, you know, the, the stigma runs so deep that even when you know something is good for you, you're just so worried of what people would say, what your parents would think, what 
what it would look like that even if you know that this is something you should do, you're not going to do it. And then that was kind of one of the more heartbreaking things that I learned was, and that's the reason why I think this book is so important, is you have to break the stigma. If that stigma doesn't get dismantled, then even if we know what's good for us, we're not going to go and get the help we need because we're too afraid of everything that comes with being the person that has depression or being the person that went to therapy. What's your personal take on seeking mental help? Oh, so hot take, but I think everybody in their like first year of undergrad should be given like free therapy for one year. You should try it for one year. If you like it, stick with it. If you don't, that's fine. But just trying this and being open-minded about therapy will really change a person. You know, there's so many different things you can discuss in therapy. It's not just, oh, I'm sad, boo-hoo, what, what can I do to feel better? You learn how to think differently, how to challenge your thought processes. You just have another person that you can kind of walk through what you're thinking and what you've, what you've experienced from a different lens and have that different perspective. And it's the most beneficial thing for, for anybody, whether you are suffering from depression, anxiety, or a mental health disorder or not. You don't have to be suffering from a mental health condition to seek therapy. I I agree 100%. I couldn't stress taking care of mental health strongly enough because, like you said, it's not just about you're sad or working through your feelings. It helps to just get those thoughts out of your head and just getting them out of your head and speaking them is helpful in and of itself, in my opinion. Exactly. I mean, you yeah. know, a lot of people think that you have had to have gone through some sort of trauma to, to be a candidate for therapy. But, you know, that that's one aspect of it. That's great. If you've gone through some trauma, definitely go get therapy. But you don't that's not a prerequisite either. So I personally have struggled with finding a fit for a therapist and I was wondering if you had any tips or recommendations on how folks can go about identifying the right therapist for them, or if you have any recommendations of who to seek out. Yeah, that's a great question. I actually have a whole chapter in the book dedicated to that. It's called Therapy. To talk about yeah, how difficult it is when you can't have that right fit with a therapist and how it, it really does impede your, your journey and not having a therapist that truly understands you and is culturally competent, especially for South Asians. But as a Georgetown student, I discovered Open Path Collective, which was in some Georgetown email. Somehow I, I was able to stumble upon it, but openpathcollective.org um, is a website that offers free, uh, where therapists can sign up to offer free and low cost therapy for folks that are uh, low income, struggling a little bit. So I was able to pay somewhere around 30 to $60 per session instead of the 100 to 120. And a lot of the therapists um, that subscribe to Open Path Collective are cult more culturally competent. There are people of color. So you're able to have folks that, you know, look and sound a little bit more like you. Um, and that is a tremendous help when you are looking for a therapist to have somebody that, that looks like you and can have some similar experiences to you. I would definitely recommend checking that out. Awesome. And it's openpathcollective.org? Yes, openpathcollective.org. How were you able to get the courage to 
you know, brush the taboos and stigma aside to form your current opinion on mental health help? Well, this is something that I experienced a bit myself. And I feel like my journey could have been different had that taboo not existed. And so this was a little bit personal for me as well. But I think when I was writing this, I, I just wrote. The, the hardest part was being like, oh, well, if my parents read this, what are they going to think? If my parents' friends read this, what are they going to think? I just wrote. I wrote for myself. And then I was able to really get out everything that I wanted to get out and get out all of the thoughts and the feelings that are associated with this. My, my other goal was just to help somebody. You know, I always yeah. said that if I was able to help one person get therapy and take care of themselves, maybe stop contemplating taking their life, then that's it. Then this book has been a success. I'm assuming your parents are super old school. What have they said about your book? Have they read it? They have not read it yet, but... Um, Isn't that disappointing? I haven't, I haven't shipped them their copies. And, and, you know, this is something, is there, something I, is, there, is there something holding you back from doing that? I, I was going to hand deliver it to them maybe when I go visit them for Thanksgiving. But, um, you know, as, as immigrant parents, my, my parents, English isn't their first language. And so I know that's going to be challenging for them to read this book. And, you know, the first chapter, I talk a little bit about my own journey. And I would be lying if I said that I wasn't nervous about what they're going to think. But it's out there now, and I, and I can't really take it back. So um, eventually they will read it. And, and if not, I will record an audiobook for them so they could, they could listen to it. But I have several friends who have read it already, and, and I've heard great things from them. So it's been wonderful to kind of hear some of that feedback. Uh, just yesterday, somebody said to me that this is bringing up so many things for me uh, that I've been, like, holding back and hiding. And I'm so grateful for you that you wrote this book. And yeah, it's just been amazing to hear some of that feedback that words that I wrote are really invoking that much emotion in somebody. That's awesome. And so I, I assume you spoke with, you know, folks from many different countries, right? So were there any cultural themes that you became more aware of through this research and interviewing for the book? that further deepens the stigma or helps kind of illuminate why the stigma's there in the first place? That's a great question because the, one of the facets of this book is talking about how South Asian culture contributes to negative mental health outcomes. There, you know, there is a chapter in my book called Lo Kya Kahenge, which means in Hindi, what will people say? And that is one of the biggest kind of barriers to taking care of your mental health you know parents or just anybody will always ask you oh what will people say in the example that I gave you about one of the interviewees I had spoken to deciding not to seek therapy was because she was afraid of what people would say and, and that sort of obsession and preoccupation with the community and this image is so pervasive in the culture and, and it stops people from being authentic to who they are it's, it stops people from doing the thing they know they need to do, like seeking therapy. And it really just kind of suffocates a lot of us, whether we grew up here or even our parents. So that is one of the, the aspects of the South Asian culture that definitely hinders our mental health, for sure. Mm. What do you think it'll take to kind of break that stigma and taboo? Is it, you know, this 
younger generation kind of stepping outside of the tradition and, and embracing it and it'll kind of trickle down from there? Or how, how do you see that yes, playing that, out? That's a huge part of it. But also we have to change the minds of the generation that came before us because so many of, of my own personal friends that I grew up with here in this country, you know, you know, you say when you're younger, oh, I'm not going to be like my parents. And then I, I see them kind of following those same patterns. And, and so even if you're born here, raised here, you understand the importance of mental health and, and you've seen it in your own life. It doesn't necessarily mean that you'll be able to kind of break the stigma and walk away from, from it. So really changing the minds of the generation that came before us and getting them to understand the importance of this, that's when the trickle down has to start. Mm. That's a tall task. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> in, in my experience, I mean, like it's interesting to hear this from a South Asian perspective because I see it similarly here in the United States. It's just a generational thing for me that, you know, those, you know, our parents' generation is just super set in their ways and mental health and getting help is like just not something on their radar. And it's just interesting that it spans across cultures as well. I was curious, this is a tough subject, right? Like, what was your favorite part about writing the book? Because I'm sure it was, like you talked about already, it, it was challenging at times. Yeah, I mean, interviewing folks was definitely very challenging. It was, it was emotionally taxing for me to, to listen to all of these different stories. Uh, I think my most favorite part was the editing portion. And that's when I was able to kind of get the feedback so the way it works with New Degree Press we had an editor, but we also had beta readers. And so these were folks that, that you chose that would read all or part of your book and provide their feedback. So I had a few friends, a few folks who were interviewees, read all or parts of the book and then provide their feedback. And, and really hearing just from their perspective, you know, in the early stages of this book, like, yes, this is, this is the right track. This is exactly how I felt was, was validating and it kept me going. There was definitely times when, you know, juggling a dual degree, finding a job, doing my master's thesis, which was oral exams, and then also working on GBE when I really just wanted to quit and be like, you know what, I don't want to do this anymore. But I think getting their feedback and really seeing that this book was needed really made me excited and just keep on going forward. And then I think one of the fun things to write in this book was the glossary. So I use a lot of Hindi Urdu words in this book because language is such an important part of the mental health discussion. And so when I wrote the glossary, kind of added in my own interpretation of a lot of the, the phrases and words that, that we grew up hearing, and that was really fun to write because I did get a little, you know, sassy and provocative in, in some of my interpretations. So I'm excited to hear what my, my parents and folks that speak these languages think about, about that glossary. Nice. So the affirmation that you were on the right track and the creativity that this outlet afforded you sounded like the best parts for you. So what advice would you have to someone that, like you said, you were thinking about writing a book and came along this Georgetown professor reached out and helped you take the leap. 
if there's someone out there listening to this that had a similar thought of writing a book but hasn't done it yet, like what advice would you have for them to just do it and take that leap? I would say that if you have an idea, talk to people about it. In the beginning, I wasn't really sure that I wanted to continue with this, like I mentioned. But the more I talked to folks about my idea, the more I was able to develop it further and get feedback from folks and kind of turn this book into what it is today. It didn't start this way. So it really helped me to get the wheels turning was to talk to people, talk to my friends, the people that I interviewed. I listened to their experiences and and talked to them about the way I wanted to structure the book. And that really helped me decide that this was the book that I wanted to write. So if somebody's out there, you know, they want to write a book, start with that idea and talk to people about it. Because the more you talk about it, the, the more real it becomes. And then it's so much easier to write a book that you've kind of spoken out into the world instead of just this idea that's been in your head for years and years, like collecting dust back there somewhere. You right. Know? right. Okay. Let's say you were writing a second book without the rigors and demand of, you know, dual degrees and recruiting, blah, blah, blah. What is the hardest part about writing a book? Getting started. Because you can be in the outline stage as long as you want. (laughs) Even, you know, writing a paper, and I've written many of those in my life. You know, you can outline for days. But for me, especially as a procrastinator, you know, I wouldn't get started until like, okay, 24 hours left to write this paper. Getting started is always the hardest part. And it took me a while to get over this, but I just started writing, whether it was chapter one or chapter eight, whatever thing I had in my head, I started writing. And that was difficult to do because I was like, no, well, this doesn't sound right. And I had to tell myself like that can be fixed in editing. You just have to get it down on paper because if it's not down on paper, you can't edit it. You need to have something down on paper. And that was the hardest part. You know, it's funny that that you say my second book because my mom has already been telling me like, all right, time to write your second book. So <laughs> the pressure's on. <laughs> she might she might not be saying write a second book after she reads the first one. <laughs> yeah, that, that's also true. Um, but I do- Does she know what it's on, about? They do, they know what it's about. Okay. And actually one of the things that was also really helpful when I was writing this book was I would talk to my parents about the interviews and just what I was learning about mental health as I was doing my research and you know they, they weren't always understanding of mental health but throughout the year when I would talk to them about it they actually started asking me questions and became curious and more open-minded so that was definitely one of the benefits for That's me very personally cool. yeah. of writing this book. Yeah, I mean, maybe you're going to change their minds completely about it. That would be, you know, a big win. Yeah, I would hope so. We'll, we'll see what happens when they read the book. So what do you do with all your free time now? <laughs> um, I've been working on marketing for the book and, and just relaxing a little bit. And then I'm, I'm looking into getting some hobbies because as a perpetual mm. graduate student, I never had time for, for hobbies. So maybe picking up, learning how to play the piano or a dance class. I love spin class, so, so I might get certified to teach spin class, which might be cool. something fun. All sounds like great ideas. So where can people get the book? The book is available on Amazon as an e-reader and a paperback. The hardcover copy is coming soon, probably by the end of November. So if you want to wait on that, 
it's a great little Christmas gift. I know the holidays are coming up, so if you want to help support a Georgetown alum, that would be excellent. Yes, I can't echo that strongly enough. Go out, buy the book, support Muzna. Super important topic. She talks about mental health uh, with respect to the South Asian diaspora. She's working to change the narrative and opinions on what taking care of mental health look should look like and feel like because it's important not to disregard that aspect. So, Muzna, thank you so much for taking your time to talk about the book and some of your Georgetown and professional career experiences thus far with Deloitte. I appreciate your time. Yeah, thank you so much. This is a lovely conversation. Had a great time. Awesome. I'm glad you enjoyed it, and we will catch you here next time on McDonough Talks. Thanks. Bye. Thanks. Bye.